Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Oh, you know, absolutely peachy, Ed. Mm. <laughs> yeah, grand. Not incandescent with rage mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> How are you? Well, not to say that quarantine is getting to me, but... I did spend at least a good hour or so this week trying to master an impression of Raul Julia in the Street Fighter movie, <laughs> doing his famous monologue to Chun-Li. Not the whole monologue, just the part where he goes, it was Tuesday, just because I really like the way that he says it. So I did spend some time this week just saying, it was Tuesday, over and over to myself, uh, ironically enough, on a Wednesday. So... I've needed some distractions this week. <laughs> I think I think it counts. I think particularly within lockdown, quarantine, whatever you're calling it, Wednesday can be Tuesday, especially if you're pronouncing it like the much-missed great man himself. <laughs> One of the other things I did this week, in between just saying it was Tuesday over and over, was I put together my top ten films of all time, which was instigated by my friend Craig, who last Sunday just started sending me a load of texts asking me who my favourite, what my favourite films were by certain directors, and event it kind of like so he's saying, oh, what's your favourite David Lynch movie? What's your favourite Jim Sharmuse movie? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And it culminated him saying like, oh, you know, if you give me a top ten, then me and uh, yeah, he and his uh, partner uh, Kasha are going to watch the top 10 over lockdown so that obviously sent me into a spiral because on the one hand it's stressful enough trying to think what are the 10 movies that mean the most to me and on the other hand it's like oh no people are going to watch this list so it probably needs to be pretty good (laughs) so I spent most of the week kind of thinking of movies coming up with a long list and then just towards the end kind of almost like a dowsing rod you know of kind of like looking at certain movies and then thinking "Mm, does this feel right Uh, this kind of seems right so I put together a top 10, which I'll run through now because I, I think I, I'm pretty happy with these choices, I think. This is in no order. This is literally just the order I thought of them. So Stop Making Sense, um, which is probably a late addition to the list, but uh, is one that I, a movie that I think about constantly. Uh, Wayne's World, which I re-watched for the purposes of putting it on this list because I thought, does it deserve to be on this list? And re-watching it, I was like, yes, absolutely. That is a great movie. <laughs> and also probably along with the simpsons the thing that is most responsible for shaping what i think of as funny to the extent that you know i i it kind of goes into a chicken and egg situation which is like do i think this movie is funny just because it defined what i think is funny (laughs) or do i think it's funny just because it's really funny and how do you extricate that but it's on my list uh then i had chunking express uh the thing Spirited Away, which was a tough choice spot on there because I knew I had to have a Miyazaki on there and it was between that and Porco Rosso. But I I went for Spirited Away because I think that's the one that means the most to me, being like the one that made me really like his movies and was like a gateway for me. Uh, Singing in the Rain, The Shining, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which again was, you know, I thought there has to be a Powell and Pressburger film on there. But it came down to the one that, you know, I think when I think of, you know, what are the ones that are most impactful uh, and that one was was the one for me. Uh, Hoop Dreams, which is like I just think is such a wonderful movie, and was really something that pushed against what I thought documentaries could be. And uh, finally, was uh, Cleo from Five to Seven, the Agnes Varda movie, which I think is just such a wonderful movie, so beautifully conceived and just flawlessly executed, and just wonderfully inventive. So I think that's by no means a, means a definitive list, but it was like. It was a nice distraction to try and come up with those and to walk away from it thinking, you know what, I could put out that list and be more or less happy with it. That's solid. I co-sign your list, Ed. Mm. Yeah, so it's, uh, so that was that was what a lot of my, list, my week consisted of, was picking those movies and berating myself over them. But um, yeah, uh, how about you? How's your week been? I've been watching an awful lot of recorded live performances. Mm-hmm because I am really hankering for as close to an audience experience as I can get. 
But in terms of series that I've been watching, absolutely screamed through Dead to Me. That's screaming, mm. screaming with laughter. The second season, I think, just builds upon what was already kind of tantalizingly put down in the first one. I think it develops a lot. The characters get richer. There's some really just like fantastic gags. I think it's one of the only things I've seen that manages to really hit the kind of because it's not a dramedy, but like the mm-hmm. but like the comedy thriller in series form because cliffhangers also function as punchlines, right? Or setups like it's really well structured to just give you satisfying payoffs, whether they be laughs or gasps, sometimes both at the same time. But in terms of the live stuff there's just such a wealth of free stuff on YouTube at the moment, it's incredible um, that theater, mm. that various theatres are releasing you know, the big hitters like the Globe and National Theatre, of course um, but lots of others as well like Andrew Scott and Simon Stevens uh, the, the piece Seawall, which I found completely devastating um, and was not actually Sort of filmed with an audience but filmed just sort of Andrew Scott and a camera that's very affecting uh, The Encounter, Simon McBurney's piece under his theatre banner Complicite at the Barbican which I actually watched when it was the first live stream on YouTube in March 2016 and I remember feeling so excited because it was live it was coming like straight from the Barbican it worked better to do that beaming it into people's homes via their like laptops because the show hinges on binaural technology. Mm. So you have to wear headphones for it to work. And Dio Mio, Ed, it's still still incredible and it still holds up. And Simon McBurney filmed a very, like, thoughtful intro and outro for this version. But I remember thinking at the time, this is so exciting that we'll be able to, like, beam theatre from London into people's homes and maybe I'll be able to watch more stuff instead of necessarily having to go to the cinema. Um, mm. that, that didn't that didn't happen. But uh, <laughs> there's also, if you do have um, some uh, spare cash, um, I never like saying disposable income because we talk about disposable income on things that are like, you know, things that make life nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just because it, may not be like essential for your biological functions it could still be very like integral to your well-being and disposable income normally falls on things that other people who aren't massive corporations are creating just saying yeah but if you do have spare cash and you'd like to invest that into the future of theaters and entertain yourself at the same time soho theater on demand has like sliding scale for most of its um shows that it's that it's got available uh, so it's starting from four pounds i guess flea bag is the big hitter obviously um but mm-hmm. the soho theater um has so much incredible stuff on its books and i think it starts from about four pounds really high quality recordings and like rental you know for a couple of a uh, couple of days and i think that's it like a lot of people are quite used to paying like top ups on like prime for example to like rent something but I think mm-hmm. the I think the idea of renting a show is still quite new to a lot of people. Um, yeah. And there's no, it's a pay as you go like Soho Theatre. You don't pay like a base subscription for like you would for Next Up, which I'm still a big a big fan of because um, I think it has a really excellent library of shows, but some of them are better quality recordings than others. But Next Up has just been doing an absolute power of stuff like round the clock live comedy on Twitch um so it all kind of it all kind of makes that subscription fee much sort of more worth it which i think brings us quite neatly to one of our news points ed which is mm. Mubi library yes this was uh, announced this week that Mubi, who are a streaming service which has been around for a good five or six years at this point maybe even longer which has always functioned on a rather unique format where they have 30 movies or 31 movies up at any one time every day a movie expires and a new one becomes available largely i remember reading an article about this years ago when um, the 
it first announced and you know people were like what's this crazy little streaming service that's trying to take on the netflixes of the world where they just basically said that you know it's way easier for them to negotiate short-term rights to you know show a movie for a month as opposed to negotiating for years down the line and it also allowed them a lot of freedom when it came to having the service available in multiple territories because it's you can't have the same 30 movies for every territory because not every distributed movie is owned by the same distributor so it kind of gave them a lot of flexibility uh, but what they've announced now is that they are kind of moving to something akin to a more traditional streaming model in that their library of movies that they've shown and presumably they still have the rights to will be available for people to watch even after the 30-day window which is a real seismic shift for them as a company because it kind of it's on one level it kind of removes the the thing that has made them so special which is this limited time thing this sense of curation but also opens up like a huge wealth of of stuff that they put out there because they have tended to focus on independent cinema or on world cinema on stuff that isn't necessarily going to be that easy to find on other streaming services even something like you know the criterion channel which has really been trying to move into that space in recent years so it's a very interesting development for for Mubi, I feel. Uh, they've they've kind of taken this step to broaden the amount of movies they can offer and clearly is a sign that they're doing well enough that they can they've had to move away from the model they were using that, you know, was I think as much an artistic choice as it was a commercial choice and you know, it, it was obviously very frugal for them to do it that way. Interesting and massively impressive, completely Ed and in terms of like shifting rights as that kind of changes you're right I think maybe previously stood out because it was this incredibly streamlined streaming service Mm. and like quite aesthetic as well (laughs) like in terms of when you'd land on the page and go down and for a lot of people that may be quite a bit monthly but compared to say the price of a cinema ticket in London really quite reasonable and like you say it was all it's all stuff that you can't find anywhere else it's not like oh well if i buy this on prime is it just going to turn up on netflix in a couple of months time and i can watch that for like months and months and months and yeah it is just the stuff that you can't find anywhere else and i like that they've managed to i think find their core identity which was reflected first of all in that kind of curatorial 30 day 30 films for 30 days thing but now that their model has changed slightly because they'll still have the 30 days mm-hmm. but there is this huge that's it it's it's the library now um they've hit on their core cinephilia kind and and like stuff that is either you know is harder to find because there may not be seemingly as much demand for it or because of territories is is tri- mm-hmm. is trickier to find and like as coming out as like a real distributor i just think it's really impressive what they're managing to cover because i feel like other brands would or like front facing platforms whatever term you want to use would probably lose themselves in something like this but this doesn't feel like a complete gear shift it just feels like well it's it's a bit like um being invited up into the projectionist's <laughs> booth. Like, it's all, it's all there. Um, yeah. And I think it's really, it's really exciting because, I mean, I've been banging on about this. We, we were talking about this on an episode ages ago where I was like, where, where is this availability for, like, you know, for film students or anyone who really loves film that it just keeps getting, like, taken away and it's harder and harder to find these films and appreciate them and keep them alive and Mm -hmm. and archived and accessible so yeah you can tell by my rambling ed that i'm impressed and excited yeah absolutely and i think it's also interesting considering that they are making this shift like in the wake of you know filmstruck being around for a while and then ending and now criterion channel having been around for a year as both being fairly viable models saying that there is a market out there for you know cinephiles people who are super heavily into movies wanting a streaming service that they can get access to the stuff that is 
not readily available on any other stream service. Like maybe you could get it for a disc from Netflix, but even then, yeah. that's not a guarantee. And uh, who knows in what order you're going to get, you know, the thing that you want to watch, you know, your DVD copy of Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives or whatever. So it's nice that there is someone else entering that space so showing that you know hey this is a this is a viable thing and that there is something that is being provided like you say for for film students and people out there who are heavily into cinema and who i think are being ill served by the you know netflix and its mad rush to do its own original stuff or you know hulu who are a little better for older movies still not having a great selection over here in the u.s amazon having a decent selection but they always prioritize their own things like it's nice to have ones where you know i mean movie do put out their own movie do put out their own films but like it's not like they're going to really force you to sit down and watch like ruchi sakamoto coda or whatever like it's a great movie but it's not like that's going to be the thing that they're going to force you to sit and you know uh, watch as opposed to you know all of the other things you're going to watch although i I don't know if ruki sakamoto does have a uh a uh sandler style 10 film deal where you'll have to sit and watch him like hang out with all his famous friends all the other members of yellow magic orchestra going to hawaii or something it's only a matter of time ed because you know what i i would watch the shit out of that oh yeah absolutely yeah please movie make that take all of your (laughs) take all of your newfound clout and make that for us uh the next piece of news again in the streaming well uh, uh in the streaming realm i think all these stories actually really deal with streaming in some way or another yeah. uh the announcement that uh Tucker and bertie which was cancelled by netflix after one season despite being a fantastic show and despite being much beloved uh has been picked up by adult swim for a second season which is uh, fantastic news because the first season was great and lisa hannawald is such a great artist and such a fertile creative mind i'm really excited to see what she does with another season but also just this kind of fun inversion of where we've been in recent years which is that netflix shows are now being picked up by cable and regular tv channels instead of the other way around yeah because it used to be like netflix when did this kind of great big cancel start to happen I forget, was it two years ago when just a swathe of shows that were really beloved by fans got cancelled? Yeah, I think it was like 2018, 2017. Like that was around about the time where people started talking about how like Netflix kind of have a three season limit on shows they produce unless they really overperform. Yeah, because they were really casting the net very wide and trying yeah. to say they were being diverse. But then everything that was getting cancelled was essentially featured kind of minority or diversity in some way. (laughs) Yeah. And I am delighted at this news, Ed, because I'm a huge Tuca and Bertie and Lisa Hanavolt fan. And I think Adult Swim is a particularly interesting place for them to go, given pretty consistent criticism of Adult Swim over the past, Mm. well, since it's since its incarnation really of a complete lack of presence of artists who are women artists who just aren't a particular kind of white man Mm -hmm. and even though i think adult swim has produced some of my favorite kind of offbeat stuff it's also produced a lot of really grim quite edgelordy stuff as well Yeah. yeah and i think it's only really been in the recent kind of uh, crop of episodes of Rick and Morty that there's been any kind of meta awareness or confrontation of that and mm. I think it was last year when Adult Swim was trying to celebrate International Women's Day, uh, Raphael Bob Waxberg said female showrunners um, <laughs> so there's an interesting almost, not immediate but reasonably direct line from Raphael to Lisa, um, and he was very supportive of her and Tuca and Bertie, and publicly supportive of her in the wake of its cancellation. Even though you know Bojack was crapping on on Netflix, um, mm-hmm. so I think that's quite. I mean, even though you know, I think the final season of Bojack had been announced by that point. It's nice to see some solidarity between you know between artists and, and collaborators. Mm, um, yeah, you know, even just because he's been nicely 
well, we assume nicely treated by Netflix with all of these series. It doesn't mean that he's not going to still stand up to them, which I thought was quite nice. But the other thing about Two Converti is that um, they everyone's going to be hired uh, on a union basis, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And I wonder if this marks a shift for Adult Swim because I wouldn't consciously go to Adult Swim. I go... I go to the show rather mm. than the the channel, if that makes sense. So I'm interested to see who else kind of migrates over to it yeah. to watch it. Because even though I really loved a lot of their like infomercial stuff that of course went viral and lives in that kind of is made for that sort of internet space, really. Wonder if it'll be an actual sea change or just a tidal <laughs> you know and it'll go back back to uh, quote unquote normal yeah i think it, it's an interesting progression to them picking up to converti when you consider that what like three years ago they were in extreme hot water for putting on that sketch show or nearly airing that sketch show that seemed to have been seemed to have like coded nazi references in it there was like some i can't remember what it was called now but there was some show where the people who made it were like like you'd say like super duper edgelord types who were doing like all this stuff to be like just being offensive to be offensive and they were just putting in like they were putting in coded like white supremacist language or images into the show that they were going to air and they were like hey it's all just a joke and I think uh, adults was like mm, no this is too far for us and then or I wonder if that was like a dark night of the soul for them <laughs> that made them think maybe we've gone too far in this particular direction that we have wittingly or unwittingly kind of seemed to be working with people who will promote like ironic Nazi shit and maybe it'd be nice if we didn't work with people who ever do that yeah yeah uh and then our final story again this is in the world of streaming was the announcement that the snyder cut of justice league is going to debut next year on the hbo max streaming platform this is a complicated situation that goes back several years so i'll try and do as brief a summation a summation of it as possible so in may of 2017 after principal photography of justice league had been completed Zack Snyder left the production of that movie due to a uh, personal tragedy in his family his, his uh, daughter um, uh, committed suicide and he left production and then the film was then handed over to Joss Whedon who was put in charge of you know doing a load of rewrites and reshoots of it which resulted in a movie that for me was a marked improvement from the previous Zack Snyder Superman properties while still being very bad but there was some goofy shit in there that I enjoyed. and the, But it definitely felt like, you know, I think even people who weren't particularly schooled in auteur theory were able to watch that and say, yeah, some of these scenes do not fit with these other scenes. It does feel like two competing visions playing out simultaneously. And almost immediately there was cause for release of the quote-unquote Snyder Cut of the movie because um, various people involved with the production had talked about how when Snyder left the movie, there was a sort of three and a half hour work print of the movie that existed. That and so initially there was this misunderstanding about what a work print is. They people seem to think, oh, there's this three and a half hour movie that was what was going to be released. When by all accounts that was not the case. There was a three and a half hour cut of the movie that over the the following six months, you know, would have been recut and edited, and you know things would have been trimmed out of it, and they would have done reshoots anyway under any situation to kind of come up with something that was releasable whereas that three and a half hour version probably was not and certainly wasn't finished in terms of the special effects and the music and everything like that but this became kind of a, a rallying cry of people saying release the snyder cut hashtag release the snyder cut it resulted in a lot of weird things like people buying billboard space in downtown los angeles saying uh with a picture of Zack snyder's face saying i have a cut it's done and then hashtag release the snyder cut and some nice things like raising money for suicide prevention charities and things like that but it was this movement i guess online of people who initially were just misunderstood how movies are made and assumed that there was this version of the movie that came that was going to come out at some point or that existed and most of the people being like well no 
there isn't a Snyder cut that you're thinking of. There's not a finished version of the movie. You know, there's this probably incomplete thing that would need a ton of work to be finished before anyone could see it. And then in uh, November of this year, rumors started circulating saying that there was an effort to make a Snyder cut and that it would debut on HBO Max, which is what confused me initially because I thought this was all that had been announced and everyone was being like, oh my God, it's real or whatever. And I thought, but this was totally announced because I remember Dan Olsen doing a video about it and then I rewatched that video this morning where he talked about it and it was like oh no he was just saying there are rumours that it's going to appear on HBO Max so this was just confirming rumours that have been out there for a while but basically what Warner Brothers have said is they're going to put 20 to 30 million dollars into completion of a Zack Snyder cut of Justice League which will have you know the finished effects and music and edited and will probably debut on the streaming service next year so it's kind of a a fun situation where kind of everyone was right in that it's true that Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League cut did not exist because they're having to spend a huge amount of money to make it happen but that it will one day exist and people will be able to watch it and presumably come away saying yeah there's probably nothing you could do to save this movie (laughs) but it's 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 interesting because I think there's a couple of intersections here like people talk about toxic fandoms and things like that and like a um people saying oh warner brothers caved to this like fan base that have been you know very annoying and very confrontational towards critics and things like that, and anyone who's doubted them in the existence of the snyder cut but also it's hard not to read it as just them being very savvy and realizing that there is a vocal group of people who they can convince to sign up for hbo max if they put a bit of money and you know for a big company like time warner a very small amount of money into kind of finishing up this movie and making it more or less presentable to be aired on a streaming service in a year's time but yeah it's it's a weird culmination to a story that over the last kind of like three years has has gone from like conspiracy theory nonsense to kind of uh you know uh secreting itself into existence Okay, so we'll go on to our main topic this week, and we are going to be talking about coming-of-age stories. This is inspired by the Hulu slash BBC original series Normal People, which uh, you have watched all of, Emily, and I've watched a few episodes of uh, in preparation for this. So why don't you tell us a a little bit about Normal People? Well, 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 well. Normal People is an adaptation of a novel by Sally Rooney. I think it's her second novel because conversations with friends was her first which i have not read i read normal people because i was gifted it for my 29th birthday and i and it had already it's amazing how specific these things that you can remember because i remember reading it in the hotel that i had to stay in because my bathroom was being redone and i couldn't sleep (laughs) and i could see why it was doing very well because it manages to have this prosaic quality to it whilst also being about interpersonal relationships that seemingly everyone's able to have an opinion on Mm. so it straddles that perfect kind of book selling market which is it can be nominated for big prizes but you'll find it in any airport right and it is I'm I'm not I'm not a huge devotee of the book it didn't strike me personally hugely, but it's, as I was chatting about it with some friends of mine who've only recently just read it, um, they said it wasn't life-changing, but they enjoyed it and couldn't put it down. And I said, well, yeah, it's kind of like a glass of water when you're thirsty, like, down and done. Mm-hmm. But the bits I did like when I was reading it were like, oh, this is quite sexy, isn't it? <laughs> some nice sexy bits in this book no one told me it was a sexy book and for some reason I should have really gathered that it would be because it is about two teenagers um, Marianne and Connell who live in Sligo in the west of um, west of Ireland and it follows them from the start of their romantic relationship because they've been at school together there's all different aspects of like class and social Mm. standing at school all this kind of like shifting like those kind of loyalties and then a different kind of awareness we follow them like going to university and then graduating and I think it does manage to pace and get the sense of that 
time very well. Mm. So I was really interested when it got announced that <laughs> when there was the announcement that it's going to be um, adapted by the BBC. I was like, okay, it's going to be. Can't wait for another like dollop of my license fee to go towards very beautiful people staring wistfully out of windows. And you know what? I wasn't entirely wrong in that, Ed. But it is. <laughs> I think the series is very sensitive. I think it's beautifully shot. Like to have Lenny Abramson of Frank and Room, um, among other things. Also, and again. This is, <laughs> behold, one of the many hills I will die upon. It's 12 episodes of 30 minutes. Oh, yes, thank you. And so it ends yeah. up kind of falling within three acts of four episodes. Mm. Um, a little bit of it kind of, I think it's very interesting where it deviates away from the book and decides to take its own stance, particularly in the last kind of third and yeah, we can get to the sexy bits in a bit, but I'm also conscious of not wanting to spoil everything for you, Ed, as you are only a couple of episodes in. Did you read the book? I can't remember. Uh, I haven't read the book, no, and I'm only I'm only two episodes in. Yes, okay. So, so far, um, I think it is so beautifully shot. And Lenny, <coughs> Lenny Abrahamson is a director who manages to infuse every shot with this kind of like genuinely like, heart-aching beauty like it's so mm. like it, like everything just smacks of like bittersweetness because anything that's beautiful is also kind of terrifying like he's he, he manages to capture the sublime and what I do appreciate about the series is that it gives legitimacy to that time it doesn't dis mm. it doesn't dismiss them it's not kind of someone much older looking back where they might be trying to distance from their younger self and, and and be embarrassed. It's all very like the flush of that time of making those stupid decisions, but only being as old as you are at that point. <laughs> and I think the arcs of Marianne and Connell, there's something about actually seeing them makes a lot of sense to me. Daisy Edgar-Jones and Paul Mescal are absolutely fantastic. Like Paul Mescal in particular is eerily good. I, I felt like there's a, there is a counselling session at some point in the future for your viewing, Ed, um, where I felt like I had to turn away because it felt like I was actually watching someone in counselling for the first time starting to <laughs> embark upon things. And yes, there are there are sex scenes, which tricky thing is, Ed, I should probably stop talking at this point because I did do my dissertation about uh, sex on screen and mm. the difference between simulated and unsimulated sex scenes from an ontological basis, not an ethical one. Uh, just trying to figure out that mise-en-scene, you know? So I could I could genuinely talk for hours about it. So I'm going to stop <laughs> just now. But I will say I think it's a very interesting thing to have been released now because I think over and over again about the swathes of young people who should be going to university or graduating from university and having these significant kind of summers or semesters that just aren't at the moment and I think mm. I think normal people does capture like quite a range of, sort of what a university experience is like I think it manages to do that pretty well and in the series I think a bit better than the book because there's something about seeing those spaces and the kind of gestures and still quite like pack animal kind of <laughs> arrangement of cliques or how you mm. kind of drift between friends and that kind of thing yeah i mean obviously i can only speak on the first two episodes but that aspect of it really kind of like spoke to me and really reminded me of my time at you know sixth form immediately before leaving to go to university and like you say that summer of you know you finish school you're in this kind of like liminal space before you're going to go to university and you know start the next big part of your life and you know having to kind of come to terms with that and I really did see a lot of my teenage years in like you say the cliques and the sense of different groups of friends really kind of like bounding together and there being this real sense of you know, uh, Connell and Marianne in, you know, getting together, 
having to keep it secret and there's this sense of being like you know oh, if people found out you know it would be incredibly awkward and and you know, like from the outside as as observers of their social group you just kind of watch it and think yeah I don't see why. <laughs> you just seem like two people who like like each other and are, you know, pretty. So it would make sense for you to get together. But as, as the show kind of goes on, you kind of get more of a look at their uh, social circle. Like you do get more of a, it does a really good job of giving that sense of like, oh, no, I see now why, you know, because of notions of clashes and things like that. And just the years and years of the relationship that exists between these two people, the people who have been at school together that would make it, you know, seem like an impossibility for everyone observing them that these two people would get together. I think what I really enjoyed about the series is exactly that plausible shift between kind of end of sixth form pre-uni and then where you sort of end up and how you feel after uni because that's three, four years of like huge development (laughs) I look back at my own and I recognise that like I can see there's this kind of idea that like nothing's really happening but everything happens because it there Mm. are these significant points in their development into the people that they become Mm. through each other and the idea of why it sparked off this kind of like coming of age interest for me is I think normal people in particular weirdly though it is specific to the west of Ireland Mm. it's not you know like a lot of American fare which is very you know kind of cookie cutter suburbia Yeah, there's not always a lot of kind of like we're in this town in this state or even if it does get mentioned you're like it really doesn't matter because there's not enough that's distinguishable for it it to really kind of have much sway but for something that does place in in both time and space it's very specific a lot of people can just read into this i mean literally read it into the book but also read into the series that there is something about that time of life not just the time the year in which it's set and i Mm. think i think a lot of coming of age films or tv is like that i think it's trying it's it's a really interesting example of a genre that is often the more specific it gets <laughs> the more subjective it gets the more that people relate to it mm, yeah yeah I, I definitely found that with normal people in the you know i grew up in rural leicestershire i grew up in a town called market bosworth which was like I checked the census once. I think there's like 2,000 people live there now, which is a big increase from when I lived there. So it was like a very small town where everyone from the different nearby villages would congregate at, you know, like first like the high school and then the sixth form college and things like that. So there was a lot of, you know, if you were friends with someone and they lived in another uh, town, there was a lot of driving around. There was a lot of getting buses. There was just this a lot of logistics in order to try and like hang out with people, and that was something that I kind of felt was keenly aware of watching. The, you know, like I say, the two episodes of Normal People, like the, the sense of having to like drive to someone's house, which is not something that I think you see in a lot of English. stories about teens because like they're all in london where people are all going on the tube or you know everyone lives in like some like you say like some suburb like the in-betweeners where you know they may have a car every so often but there is that just general sense that people can just walk to each other's houses Mm. so i thought it did a really good job of depicting that sense of yeah like so the in-between spaces of when you do live in a place that's very rural and there is just a lot of time of traveling <laughs> to places yeah. um, and I think there's a, a they, it does a really good job with like the intimacy of that like when Connell and Marilee, uh, Marianne first sleep together and it's all about having to arrange for her to come to his house on a weekend where his mum's going to be away or them having sex in the car and then just kind of like holding each other afterwards like there's just a tremendous sense of intimacy to the whole thing which makes it very funny to me that you know like one of the producers was asked about what, how the uh the sex scenes from the series have been uploaded to you porn i think or you know one of the uh three porn channels and and them uh 
be sounding quite aghast at it, but I think a lot of people online's response was they should take that as a compliment. <laughs> that yeah. That's the response people have is that they they do find them genuinely to be very sexy and like in a way that is not just due to the fact that you know the actors are both very pretty, but that there is a real palpable sense of intimacy and sexual tension between the two characters that you really see on screen. Yeah, and. Pornhub is not. I mean, I'm. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna finish that sentence, Ed. But <laughs> that there is so they're so evocative, mm-hmm. and that even though there's full frontal nudity on both parts, there's something quite. Um, oh God, yeah, I'm about to say this. There's something quite like classical and artistic about seeing mm. their naked bodies. There's a, a lot more vulnerability than than kind of anything like exploitative um mm. and i think because exactly because they're being presented as something that isn't specifically titillating or functional because yeah. it because these are characters and the sex is treated as as fundamental plot points and you know plot is character and characters deciding on actions and sex can be part of that and actually seeing the nature of the sex and that we believe that it is when they say to each other it's different with you we believe that mm. when you know contrasted with other characters and i don't think that's done particularly well personally i think <laughs> a lot of what particularly marianne's experiences with other men um is trying to get across Marianne's experiences with other men sexually is quite reductive, I think. Mm-hmm. And we don't see Connell much. And I wonder how much of this is the BBC's triparite mission of to educate, entertain and inform. And it does get quite... I don't know. I think the problem is, Ed, is that I sat there in the first time that Marianne and Connell have sex... I was like, who has sex like that for the first time? Even if you're with right. someone more experienced, like, and that's lovely, but it is a fairy tale. Mm. And a lot of the way that Connell and Marianne function for each other is fairy tale. So there is something, there are two concurrent lines in Normal People for me, that kind of heady fantasy that you get as a teenager when things are so significant. Mm. And it is the first time you're falling in love. It is the first time that you're leaving home. And all of that is so vivid. But then there is also this idea that it's meant to be like incredibly plausible and down to earth. And that we all sort of recognise a mix of that teenage kind of like fantasy and yearning. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the the field of Pornhub is very... It's a oh God, I mean it's it's a minefield is the field of Pornhub and, <laughs> and, and for that to be uploaded I think is I think one of my I think one of my favorite memes on the internet is um or 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 jokes is basically a screenshot of the Pornhub search bar with someone just putting in tender forehead kisses mm-hmm. yeah and, <laughs> <laughs> I was like yeah that's interesting that there is there may even be like surprise surprise a market for this and i'm not going to sound too withering about censorship and and being a prude um because mm-hmm. again might refer you to my dissertation but i think I, I i hope that it i hope that it does actually serve as a as an example for mm. younger people of how to treat each other and if they stumble upon it on Pornhub rather than the rest of it. Maybe that's good. Maybe we should also just have better sex education across the board. That could also help. So it's not on the <laughs> the onus of um, art, BBC or otherwise to do that kind of thing. Hmm. Because I think I, I consistently was kind of stepping in and stepping out of normal people. And I was like, decide, decide whether you're going to be real or implausible or you know, rather than, into, you know, I think this maybe the kind of expectations versus reality doesn't really come mm. in a lot. There is also, very importantly, um, an excellent article by Galdem about the kind of 
box ticking nature of the diversity of the cast Mm -hmm. because I found it horribly coded (laughs) and I don't think it was intended that way but when you watch it it does basically kind of come out like oh well these two these two young white kids (laughs) are um are are kind of uh, best suited to each other for some reason right and I think kind of sex and virginity and love are all like prime tropes of any coming of age film. Speaking of movie, I still have yet to watch um, my gal Celine Siama's Water Lilies, so I'm looking forward to mm-hmm. that. Um, but the one, the other sort of film that really like surprisingly came to the forefront of my mind because I only watched it once, but it really stuck with me. It was Thumbsucker, right? Yes, which I think it was such a good film, and the relationship in that between its sort of Connell and Marianne-esque age protagonists felt so much more like real to me in terms of how it was presented and that sense of like experimentation that then can then, if it's not on a mutual basis, can feel like a power trip and very mean. Mm-hmm. It also has Keanu Reeves as a dentist. Like how did, like what? In this, in in the Reeves-essence in which we are experiencing in the past five years, his thumbsucker not just like, basically, I want to watch it again, Ed, and I haven't found where it's like <laughs> lying about on the internet. Yeah, I, I, I just had to double check the which film uh, Thumbsucker was, because I always get it mixed up with the Chum Scrubber, which is a different movie entirely. Uh, but yes, that's the, the, it's a very, uh, yeah, it's a very good movie. Uh, Mike Mills, very good, very good filmmaker. Oh, yes. I think Should make more. I think that's actually my favourite Mike Mills film, you know? I mean, it's, just, it's a strong choice. Certainly, probably his his least heralded of the three that he's made so far, because, like, uh, 20th Century Women was, like, a real core celeb a couple of years ago, particularly when it didn't get much at the Oscars. And uh, Beginners, obviously, has, like, a, just a wonderful performance by Christopher Plummer, who, you know, rightly got, got an Oscar for it. But, yeah, like, I think... Uh, maybe, maybe because Thumbsucker is in a more, I don't know, like like because it's kind of like deals with teens maybe isn't quite as taken quite as seriously because I feel like because there is such an overlap between coming of age and teen movies that they are yeah. tend not to be considered as seriously. Which is odd because, yeah, I think it's, Maybe there is a little bit of a problem with the majority of coming of age films do actually have a bit more of a message mm-hmm. or like a kind of like in like there's some kind of instruction within yeah. it, right? And I think normal people manages to keep it quite subtle. I think it's only because I am um a creaking crone of thirty that I can kind of see what they're getting at. Man, Ed, you know what? I I kind of wish I was 17, 18 years old and watching normal people for the first time because I think I'd get so much out of it. And I and I do wonder if mm. it would... I'm not going to start thinking about whether, whether I treat <laughs> myself or other people differently from 17 or 18 just on the basis of watching normal people. That's, that's a bit icky and impossible to note. But I think... Whereas teen stuff, I think, is often made by adults who are trying to... Uh, who are trying to recapture their youth and then it can be a bit it can, it can kind of miss the mark like as soon as you say teen i immediately just think like gross out kind of quite simple like the stuff that wet hot american summer manages to parody really well mm-hmm. whereas coming of age is a little bit more and i think it instructional and i think if it manages to not make that horrendously obvious on the surface that's when it's most effective so I'm thinking yeah. of stuff like Thumbsucker. I'm also thinking of like, I think The Go-Between mm-hmm. is a really amazing, I'd say like Sabrina. Yeah. Kind of going back a fair bit in and mm. and Gigi yeah. as well. Like, I think that they're sort of different because I know we talk a lot about like, oh, they're all clearly like in their late 20s and trying to be teenagers. Um, <clears> but <throat> for, it felt a lot less icky watching Gigi, even though there is a song that <laughs> Morris, Morris Chevalier sings called Thank Heavens for Little Girls. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I had that on VHS, Ed. My, nan- my nana bought it for me. Anyway, I haven't watched Sex Education either on Netflix. And I think that gets uh, an, awful no, lot of, an awful lot of kind of thumbs up across all ages. Um, 
and again seems to be like warm and and kind and, mm-hmm. and sort of on on the level rather than like you know the mean girls don't get pregnant or you will die everyone take a rubber <laughs> sort of mm-hmm. level of uh, I think that raises a question mm-hmm. which is because obviously we're, we're making a distinction in some respects between coming of age and teen movies although I think they're they're obviously because they're dealing in many cases with the same age range there is some overlap do you think that for something to be a coming of age movie it kind or you know rather story it has to deal with heartbreak to an extent or at the very least disillusionment like has to have that melancholy quality to it yeah i think it does i do because i think even if it's not heartbreak from like a romantic relationship i think it has Mm. to be I think it has to be the first significant change. Right. Because I think coming of age is about an awareness of the world that moves you from child to adult. Yeah, because one of the first movies that I thought of in terms of this, uh, again, a, an English coming of age movie, is Shane Meadows' A Room for Romeo Brass. Yeah, wow, yeah. Which is a movie that hasn't got any... Well, it does have a romantic subplot, but it's not to do with the two teenage boys who are the main characters, where, you know, there's it's about the relationship between these two uh, boys, one of whom... Uh, who have been friends for their, like, whole lives, one of whom, um, I believe, hurts his back, so he can't kind of, like, hang out as much with the, the main character, Romeo Brass, played uh, brilliantly by Andrew Shim, who would later go to work with Shane Maddows and a bunch of stuff. And they end up... Uh, Andrew Shim's character, Romeo, ends up spending more time with a character played by Paddy Considine, who I think in his first performance... Um, I think it is, yeah. Because I, I believe he and Shane Meadows both took the same like photography class. And Shane Meadows just basically said, hey, I need you to be in a movie. <laughs> Could you play this part, please? Um, which is wonderful. I love when you can look at someone's whole career as just, oh, right, you just happen to be friends with someone who needed someone to help out. And you become like one of the best actors of your generation. What a weird coincidence. That is all about the way in which that experience really tests their friendship because the Paddy Considine character is, you know, initially seems like just a bit odd, but as it goes on, becomes apparent that he's actually, you know, quite a dangerous person mm. to them. And even though the story ends up with like a, a re-establishment of something similar to the status quo, there is that sense that they have had an experience with a kind of adult darkness that hadn't really entered into their relationship previously where you know these two kids are always going around to each other's houses and whatnot and watching that movie because i i didn't see that movie until the like late until after i'd seen this is england because that was when i really got into uh, shane meadows and i always found i i really related to that relationship between uh between the two boys because when i was at school i had a very close friendship with a a guy called john marafa when this would have been in 2002 because it was when there was the world cup where italy did really well and his family was italian and there was like a summer where he came around to my house every day and this he had to get a bus that was like a 20 minute ride so he was it was an effort on his part but like we just hung out all the time and would like you know just kind of play video games watch movies and hang out and then after that summer, we basically never talked again. Like we just completely drifted apart, which was quite sad. It certainly, in retrospect, it's kind of like, oh man, I wonder what happened there. But like, it was a very kind of that that kind of sense of a super tight relationship that is kind of like forged in you know childhood and just hanging out together, being tested. Like that was a part of that movie that I really related to when I saw it like years later. That has reminded me of one of my favorite coming of age films or I would class as a coming-of-age film, also starring Paddy Constine, My Summer of Love. Mm, yeah, that was on my list as well. Oh, Natalie Press, Emily Blunt, 2004. What a time, Ed. What a time. And that, I think, is interesting because it is someone who's kind of, uh, like, I think maybe even in their early 20s, but just something mm. has kind of... This film follows their perspective, kind of being, like, blown open yeah and i think there is that sense that yeah that there is just this shift in perspective often something like scary or sad or disappointing oh the flavors of adulthood Mm. (laughs) another one i had in a similar in terms of like 
things ending in a better place, but still that sense of like sadness is uh, spirited away, which obviously I mentioned earlier is one of my top ten films of all time. But I really feel like the journey that uh, Chihiro goes on in that movie where you know technically at the end of the movie she's more or less in the same place because you know her parents have gone into and her have gone into this magical world and then they leave it like the experience that she has gone on in terms of you know having her name taken away from her and nearly forgetting a sense of self and all of these adventures she's had with this kind of like cadre of these kind of cr- uh, wonderful odd unusual creatures you know kind of like fundamentally leaves her changed and a very different person and you see the way that she interacts with her parents at the end of the movie is markedly different to when they start and that again is one of those things where you can see even though this is like a happy ending the journey has been quite sad and there's a a real bittersweet quality that permeates the entire movie as a result Mm. some of the other examples i had i noticed that there is often an overlap between crime stories and coming-of-age stories, particularly in stories about young men. So some of the examples that I had were um, City of God, which, which is, is wow, very yeah. very much a movie about, you know, two young boys who grow up in the favelas and whose lives go on these radically different tracks. And, you know, the movie, like the whole second half of the movie, really is about them as adults kind of having ended up at very different places in their life as a result but that is very much you know a movie in the first half about them experiencing this kind of like real you know this this world of like violence and terror they grow up in whilst also having all of the usual things of being a young man of like you know being becoming interested in sex of you know drifting away from people you know making new friends trying to you know establish a career whether it's as a photographer or as the leader of a gang of children who murder people with guns you know um the two choices that we all face <laughs> or, or boys in the hood another example of one where you know there's there's definite kind of like sense of crime around the edges of a story that otherwise is all about you know kids growing up and confronting confronting the challenges of young adulthood and one that I'm a huge fan of was the Takeshi Kitano film The Kids Return, which is all about a, a two, two boys in their like mid-teens, one of whom trains as a boxer, one of whom becomes a Yakuza. And it's all about the divergent paths they go on as a result of their, their choices. And, you know, these two kids who grew up and were so close together kind of drifting apart but still having this connection to each other. And I think that's a really beautiful and, you know, un- perhaps unsurprisingly, yeah, very kind of bittersweet and sad movie that's got a real kind of palpable sense of of ageing and dr- for, uh, drifting apart to it. Yeah, that also reminds me big time of My Brother is an Only Child. Mm. Oh, yeah. One of my favourite films that I keep coming back to again and again. And I think it's interesting because it's one of those where I think you have to clip coming of age, right? You, you, mm. you have to kind of start in childhood and have, it's almost like percentage of time being seen as an adult even right. like older you know and i think it has to involve adolescence because mm-hmm. i don't think you can have even if you look at like stuff like bridge to terabithia or like you know my girl i don't think that's that's not quite the same yeah because i think you yeah, need it... you need that full that full span but not too too far either end of the spectrum yeah it has to kind of be in that that period where you are becoming aware of the broader world but you are not in a place to really understand it whether that is about you know in the in the case of like you know something like city of god or whatever kind of being aware that crime is a thing but and that is a thing that you can do but not being aware of the full ramifications of that like not realizing the human toll of it or in the just the realm of you know sex just like the awareness that sex is a thing that people do but Mm. not really being prepared for the complications and the emotions and you know everything that kind of gets churned up by it you know it has to be in that period where your life as a young person becomes drastically more complicated in every conceivable way and you know coming of age movie in many ways is about watching someone navigate that and where they end up at the end of it 
Yeah, for sure. And I argue that you can have coming of age subplots in films, mm. but it's only really a coming of age if the protagonist is going through that. I mean, I mean that just in terms of what you were saying there, Ed. It just made me think of Mad Men. Um, right, yeah. And Sally's whole arc yes. is very coming of age, but Mad Men is not a coming of age <laughs> piece. No. Um, but we can see what it's like to grow up in an era like that because of Sally's character. Yeah, and I do, I do kind of think about how lucky they were that Kenan Shipka was such a good... Was such, was such a good find like so such a great actress who started good became better as the show came along and could really shoulder that storyline because if you know they they picked another bobby who they could just keep trading out for a different actor <laughs> i don't think it would have quite the resonance that you have watching her age over the course of that show i think there's somewhere floating around the internet Ken and shipka is asked to rate all of the bobbies <laughs> in order of preference <laughs> personal preference and i was like this is the content i live for <laughs> i think also if we're talking about like the complicated emotions and i think also that sense of bigness that i think you have as a teen uh, and an adolescent that real sense of that which again to go back to normal people don't think it gets really right is the sense of epicness of everything you're doing being like massively important because it's it's happening to you for the first time and it's a very big deal to you um i think that's why coming-of-age stories lend themselves very well to fantasy storytelling mm. because there is a expressiveness to it that allows you to really... an expressionistic quality to it that allows you to project these these kind of trials into a, a realm of, you know, kind of fantasy or magic or sci-fi. And one of the ones that uh, came to my mind, mainly because it just got added to Netflix in the US after not being on there for a while, is Avatar The Last Airbender, which is very much a story about a young man who starts the story as a, you know, kind of a, a playful kid who doesn't want to take on the responsibility of saving the world and is kind of a goofball. And over the course of the four series, goes through these experiences of encountering death, of encountering all of these people who need his help and becoming aware of a broader world and no longer being able to be as selfish and like his lessons over the course of the series are you know he learns how to control different elements but really it's about coming into an idea of who he is as a person and i think that what makes that story really effective is not just that it's a, a very well written show and it's beautifully animated and has all this kind of like great action but that there is this real palpable sense of a coming of age story that carries the whole thing all the way through and you do really see this character mature and change over the entirety of its its running time it's interesting how those elements of fantasy and sci-fi like i'm thinking of you know sort of labyrinth and the goonies back in the day and kind of stranger mm. things to a lesser extent i think because yeah. the function of sci-fi and fantasy or the supernatural there's a dis a discovery of like another world that is made literal mm. in that genre and you go through that and then come back with a deeper understanding so yeah. I, I think that features a lot but i wouldn't i wouldn't say that lord of the rings is coming of age even though i no. think frodo is meant to be quite young he's young by hobbit standards he's still probably like 70 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh i like i might start running my age by hobbit standards now ed that's made me feel lucky. <laughs> <laughs> but I, on a similar tip in that the movies were coming out at more or less the same time for a while i think that's why you know harry potter definitely is a coming of age story particularly in the films where you are literally seeing the characters age over time as you're watching the actors age and i think their performances bring a level of authenticity to that experience that often wasn't quite there in the books i mean the books are good at conveying that sort of stuff but it at times kind of as a kid reading it you know there were some false notes to it and i do feel like you know there is a lot of an adult woman trying to write a teen experience as opposed to the actors who are like yeah we are actual teens we are able to embody this experience mm. 
So we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well. I'll kick us off this week. For me, I think the thing I'm going to recommend is the second season of FX's What We Do in the Shadows, which is uh, been about seven or eight episodes have aired so far, and I caught up on it this week, and it's been an absolute delight. It's really built upon the world of the first series where you are being introduced to different kinds of fantastical creatures so far this season we've seen benedict wong as a necromancer using his uh, <laughs> his real accent which he very rarely gets to use so it was great hearing him his manchester twang uh, who brings Haley joel osmond back to life as a zombie which also is very fun we've seen ghosts we've seen possessed dolls uh we have also obviously been in seeing plenty of vampires and uh, an expansion of the the world of the first season of now they're being vampire hunters also on uh staten island with the uh the cast of the show but them being just as inept as the vampires they're chasing after and it's had some fantastic guest stars as i've already mentioned you know you've got benedict wong jay uh, hayley joel osmond nick kroll was in the most recent episode uh mark hamill in the sixth episode as a vampire who matt berry's character owes a uh, debt to and who forces him to go on the run as a bartender called Jackie Daytona in one of the <laughs> one of the best episodes of television I've seen in ages. Just a really funny episode of television in a season that has just already been fantastic and has set a really high bar. So I'm going to recommend that. What we do in the shadows it is on Hulu over here in the US. I think it's due to start airing in the UK at some point this year, so people will hopefully not have to wait too long because it is well worth the wait. And you know what? From my end, Ed, uh, speaking of Natasha Dimitriou uh, vehicles, Mm -hmm. and I don't know how familiar people in your collection of uh, states are with Staff Let's Flats, but Staff Let's Flats is one of my favourite sitcoms um, of the past five years, uh, written by Jamie Dimitriou. Natasha Dimitriou's brother. Um, she plays Sophie, his sister, and <laughs> the cast got together and did a lockdown special episode that's about seven, eight minutes, and it's so well pitched. <laughs> They're all. It, I didn't realise how I'd actually missed seeing them. It felt like being on a Zoom call <laughs> with some of my friends, um, and it's delightful. And is sure to cheer anyone up. And I think also, hopefully, I think it actually works as an introduction to Staff and his pals. So, um, yeah, hopefully there's a way to watch it legitimately (laughs) in the the US, the full series. But I'm pretty sure it's all on Channel 4 um, and, and that they're YouTube. Cool. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.